HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. This is Mitchell Davis, host of Taste Matters. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And I am talking today with Christopher Leonard, the author of The Meat Racket, uh, a new expose of the meat industry and specifically of Tyson um, Meat Empire, I guess we should call it. It's kind of a... A story that tells you how we got to where we are now with industrialized livestock agriculture. Uh, Christopher Leonard is the former national agribusiness reporter for the Associated Press. His work has appeared in Fortune, Slate, and the New York Times, and he is a fellow with the New America Foundation, a nonpartisan public policy institute in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the program, Chris. I really appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I loved the book, uh, not just because I'm a meat geek, but because it's actually a fascinating story. Um, The Tyson family empire is one of uh, interesting and bizarre personalities in a certain way, and then a very convoluted but um, uh, almost logical... um, development of a business that has just gone as far as we're concerned you and i and many of our listeners uh right off the rails so um you talk about the fact that uh that the meat industry has become chickenized and that's largely thanks to the models uh developed by the tyson family don tyson in particular and um and you sort of compare it to the tenant farming or sharecropping of uh say the old cotton days why don't you talk about how this model plays out in the chicken industry and then how sort of later it's been uh, adopted by the pork industry and to some extent the cattle industry. Yeah, sure. Chickenized, it's a funny word, but it is, it's sort of this phrase you hear a lot in rural mm-hmm. America, especially in meat-producing towns. And the key concept of chickenization is vertical integration. And by that, what I mean is, you know, Tyson Foods is one of the first companies to really figure out that they could raise chicken and they could raise meat more efficiently than anybody else 
if they tightly integrated all the elements of productions. So what that means is Tyson Foods owns all the businesses that used to be kind of independent businesses on downtown Main Street. A big Tyson plant will have not just a giant slaughterhouse, but it will have the feed mill, it will have the hatchery, it will have the trucking line. Tyson Food determines, you know, the genetics of the birds that will be bred, how they're bred, it owns the birds the entire time, it produces the feed the birds eat, it tells farmers how to raise them. So it, it tightly controls all the aspects of production, which makes it really productive. I mean, this is why we saw chicken go from being a, a sort of expensive specialty meat back in the 30s to being sort of the cheapest, most plentiful, popular meat today. So with chickenization comes centralized control, and that's been sort of a key revolution in the business. Mm-hmm. You know, Tyson, Tyson Foods today can control a network of about 4,000 chicken farms from one central office. It can control how many birds are raised, what kinds of birds are raised. And a a really important element in this is that control, because what happened over the decades is not just that Tyson Foods figured out how to control the chicken business from top to bottom, but it grew larger and larger, buying out its competitors and reducing competition so that now farmers don't really have a choice in many areas for who they're going to do business with, because Tyson has bought out everybody. I mean, this is one company that makes over 20% of all the chicken in the U.S. Right. So when you, when you say chickenized now, you mean a company that has almost dictatorial powers over the farmer. I mean, these farmers are kept on short-term contracts. They know if they speak up against the company, they can have their contracts canceled. They can be put out of business overnight. Uh, It's documented again and again that that happens. So with chickenization comes real power. You uh, described the business practice of tournaments in which farmers are essentially pitted against one another and one farmer's gain will be another farmer's loss, um, basically to keep the price stable for Tyson. Can you talk a little bit about those tournaments? Because that that really seemed like a pernicious um, development in the industry. It is one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen as a business reporter. I I couldn't believe it. You know, I assumed when I initially started covering this that Mm -hmm. farmers would get get paid the same way other farmers do, on sort of a price-per-pound basis. Right. The the farmers are raising these birds that Tyson Foods owns. Tyson drops them off, picks them up, and the farmer gets paid for their work. But as you said, Tyson doesn't pay farmers based on on a per-pound basis. What they do is they'll take a group of farmers in a local area that delivered birds to a slaughterhouse in a given week. Then Tyson ranks them against each other, and the ranking's based on how much weight your birds gain on the given amount of feed Tyson provided you. Mm -hmm. And then critically, the tournament is is a zero-sum game. The top half of the farmers will take money from the bottom half of the farmers. So what that means is that a given pool of farmers in a tournament, they could all do great. They could hit home runs. They could beat all industry benchmarks. They could all do fantastic. But by the nature of the tournament, the top half will be taking bottom from the money half, no, uh, the money from the bottom half, right. no matter what. It's a zero-sum game. So that effectively divides farmers against each other. But another really critical point of this tournament is that the main criteria for success is out of the farmer's hands. What really determines success is the health of the chickens and the quality of the feed. Any chicken farmer will tell you that. Well, Tyson Foods or a company like it controls those inputs. So 
the tournament really ends up being more like a lottery for the farmer. They hope they get good birds. They hope they get good feed. Mm-hmm. And also, at the end of the day, they know that they're competing against their neighbors uh, for, for their paycheck. I mean, if you're at the bottom of this tournament, you're gonna be, you can quite possibly be losing money on a flock of birds. In other words, you will work six weeks, seven days a week, only to lose money on the transaction because you place at the bottom of the tournament. Unbelievable. You also yeah. make the point, uh, which I thought was really interesting, that the farmers who invest the more money or continue to invest money in their chicken houses tend to rank higher in the tournament versus uh, people with older chicken for, uh, with older chicken houses. And I thought that played out in an interesting way because it's 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 almost like. Um, you know, it's uh, it reminds me of like miners having to use scrip, you know, for uh, basics in a grocery store in a mining town or something. You know what I mean? Like, there's something sort of fundamentally wrong with this equation, where you know, yeah. like you're constantly going into more debt so that you can upgrade your chicken houses and then hopefully gain uh, an initial gain a, a little uh, percentage point over your your neighbors and fellow farmers. Can you talk a little bit about those? You know how that plays out. Absolutely. It's a really important element of the tournament. So I, I described it as like a lottery, mm-hmm. but the one, thi- one thing that can be shown to slightly improve your performance or, or give you an edge is if you have newer facilities, you know, m- maybe a wind tunnel type chicken house that's going to be a little bit more efficient in terms of heat, keeping the heat, than your neighbors. So what this means is that farmers are constantly pressured to upgrade the houses. They might have signed right. a contract thinking, oh, I'll make money at the end of this contract. But by the time the end rolls around, somebody else has opened up a newer chicken house, and they're competing against you in the tournament, so you're actually starting to lose money, and you need to upgrade. What it effectively does is it gives Tyson control over the one thing they don't own, which is the physical facilities of the chicken houses and the chicken farms. It, It creates this incentive for farmers to constantly upgrade. And I call it sort of an anti-Robin Hood effect. What it means mm-hmm. is you've got people getting into this business, borrowing money to build the new houses. They compete against the people that are just starting to get their feet under them and have been in the business for a few years, but they got they have older housing. So the newer housing is stealing money from the older housing through the tournament and forcing the, the longer-term farmers to then reborrow, get deeper back into debt, maybe even build a new farm to try to keep up with the tournament. And so, again, it's a way for Tyson to control the one element it doesn't own, which is the physical uh, facilities. One thing that you didn't bring up and which Tyson also doesn't own, and and I'm just going to touch on this briefly because there's so much other material to cover, is they also don't own the shit. They don't own Mm -hmm. the chicken shit. And Mm -hmm. this is an incredible problem for farmers and an increasingly uh, larger problem as uh, sort of the antibiotics and various uh, other additives to chickens to keep them healthy, like arsenic, are, are being discovered in uh, local water tables, local soils, local wildlife, etc. Um, so if we have time, let's talk about that for a second. But I want to go back to this business, um, and then we're going to move on because there's so much stuff to do. But the other thing that really struck me when you were talking about the tournaments was the punitive nature of the relationship between Tyson and many of the contract farmers. In other words, if a farmer gets uh, you know, consistently bad feed or consistently bad chickens, and you, you know, opening chapter describes somebody going out of business because he kept getting flocks that would die on him, and um, and it and it drove him out of business because of the debt he had incurred in building his chicken houses, and the, and the, and then this this was documented by one of the guys who worked at Tyson, um, who I think you had to give a 
an alias too, um, who said that they, those farmers, the ones that complained were the ones that were going to get bad birds or bad feed. Tell me about that a little bit. You bet. The Meat Racket, first of all, I think it's a book about power. Yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is a book about food, but I'm really looking at the power structure of this and the right. power these companies have. So when I own a giant Tyson plant, you know, a certain number of the chicks that come out of that hatchery, they're not going to be the best chicks. I mean, they're pumping out millions of birds a month, yeah. and you're, you're going to have some that aren't so hot. And you're correct. There's a source in the book who is the one source that got an alias because he did have a legitimate fear of being retaliated against. He walked me through clearly how the company can track which baby chicks are going to be coming from the older hens, which, you know, those are going to be your not-so-hot chicks. Right. The, the, the worst growers, if you will. And he said that he noticed trends over periods of years that the worst chicks would go to the farmers that the plant manager disliked. In other words, the farmers that were known to complain, the farmers that were known to raise questions, the, the quote-unquote troublemakers. Right. When it came... When it came time to deliver a batch of bad chicks, those chicks would time and again go to the quote-unquote troublemakers. And by the way, it's not just this one source. His testimony really tracked perfectly with what you see in sworn under oath testimony in other lawsuits, including a lawsuit in Broken Bow, Oklahoma, where a Tyson Foods plant manager was recorded as saying, yeah, we gave the bad birds to the troublemakers. And farmers know this. You know, yeah. you only need to do something like that once or twice before farmers get the clear message, don't ask questions, don't complain, don't stand up for yourself, or you're going to find yourself in a position where you're ranking lower in the tournament because you're getting the worst chicks. Right. And then the lower you are in the tournament, the less money, if any money, you make on your flock. And then suddenly you're not meeting your mortgage payments for the giant loans uh, for your chicken houses that you had to build. Um, I want to move on here because I, I actually want to talk for a minute about the cheap loans, um, the collusion of banks in rural areas and those parallels with the housing bubble loans that um, sort of coincided with this to a certain extent. And you have a long chapter about how um, immigrant labor, primarily Laotians, would come in. And because, um, you you know, immigrants tend to be sort of more content with less, given that they usually come from a very troubling uh, background, you know, a very troubled background. Um, you know, talk a little bit about how <laughs> how that's played out, because that's an astonishing story where you, you, you show family after family after family, some with no kids, some with 10 kids, and they all uh, project that they're going to need the same amount of money to live on over the course of the year, and that this would give allow banks to give them loans, or this would encourage banks. Yeah, yeah, it is. It was an amazing story. These these immigrants you referred to are, are Laotian mm-hmm. uh, immigrants who were, you know, I interviewed a lot of them. They lived their early lives in refugee camps Absolutely. because of the war, the war in Laos. So they were willing to move to Arkansas, live a lifestyle you and I would say is very close to to poverty. I mean, sleeping on a mattress on the floor, wood burning stove, mm-hmm. and working in the chicken houses seven days a week. But I wondered. Why are banks loaning money to these farmers, you know, $2 million, for example, to build a chicken house right. in, a, in a business where the profit margin is kept razor thin by these companies, where you're flock to flock, you don't know if you're going to actually make money thanks to this tournament? Well, the reason why banks were willing to do this is because there's this obscure USDA agency called the Farm Service Administration. Mm-hmm. And what they what this group does is... 
it guarantees loans for poultry houses. So let's say I'm a Laotian immigrant. I borrow $2 million. I, I build a farm, and I go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Well, the FSA is going to bail out the bank that extended me that $2 million loan. The FSA will pay 90% of the loan if I default. And, you know, the bank is already going to have collected fees and mortgage payments and, and made some money off of it. So the farmer themselves goes bankrupt. They have no protection. They have to do something new with their life. But the bank will be bailed out to 90% of the loan value and then be willing again to extend the next loan to the next farmer. So this loan guarantee program really greased the wheels for, for a system where the bank is willing to extend the next loan on the next poultry house, even though the business remains highly volatile for these farmers, and they really do live on, on the edge of bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. I, I interviewed one Laotian couple that borrowed $2 million. They couldn't afford health insurance. Right. I mean, they couldn't, affo- they couldn't afford to fix their driveway. That's how little money the farmer keeps. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you have a big government subsidy like this that guarantees a loan, Nobody, it, it created a bubble, absolutely. You, you mentioned these couples would move to Arkansas, apply for loans, and they were each stamped as needing $20,000 a year to live off of, whether they had two kids, whether they had 12 kids. Yeah. It, was, it was a total rubber stamp type uh, loan program where they were just throwing these loans out the door and leaving the farmer to find out whether that was a viable operation or not. And unfortunately, it often wasn't. And a lot of these farmers went into bankruptcy. And what's interesting about that is that, and just to make sure that we make this point, ultimately it's the taxpayer who's picking up the tab. So if you want to extrapolate this further, essentially taxpayers are subsidizing companies like Tyson uh, to continually recruit, train, and use up and throw away, um, you know, farmer after farmer in the service of creating cheap meat. That's a completely accurate way to paint it. If the taxpayers, <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> yeah. If, if the taxpayers were not there to bail out these banks, the banks would have to actually take a hard look at the loan. Right. And, and say, geez, can this farmer make a living over a period of even 10 years doing this? Right. But because, yeah. So taxpayers, taxpayers are there to bail them out, and it, it's a pipeline of loans for this exploitative situation. It's it's exploitative and it's also to my mind it should be highly regulated because essentially what's happening is just as we are subsidizing um, low income workers at fast food chains because they have to use uh, food stamps and Medicare, um, we're subsidizing um, you know these farmers because Tyson doesn't pay them enough to make good on their loans. I, I just find that the whole story, I'm telling you, this book just blew my mind. I mean, I thought I knew a lot about the meat industry and just how dirty it can be. Oh, no. <laughs> really? I mean, you really got deep into the goods there. Um, another thing that, that really intrigued me, and then we're going to take a short break, is um, something that you call, that uh, you identified as the Freedom to Farm Act, and that it had a, a tremendous impact on um, what we once knew as diversified farming, the way most farms worked, where you had you know crops and livestock, and they all sort of formed this beautiful continuous um, loop, closed loop of of resources and inputs, um, kind of like you know polyphase farms, you know like what we all think is like the ultimate ideal farm thing, and that was pretty much the norm back in the day. And this Freedom to Farm Act had a big impact on that. What can you explain what that was? Yeah, you bet. Um, And first of all, this point drives to the fact that these big meat companies we have today, the big four that dominate the market, Mm -hmm. 
these are creatures of big government. I mean, these are the, mar- the ultimate marriage between big business and big government. They rely on massive subsidies that distort the market, and therefore they can further distort the market and dissuade competition. This isn't just like uh, the invisible hand free market creating these, these giant firms. So freedom mm-hmm. to farm played a critical role in that. You're right. Back in the day, you used to have diversified farms where farmer would raise grain, feed it to animals, sell the animals, and sell the grain. Right. And we're not just we're not just talking polyface farms type operations here. I mean, we're talking big, mid-sized operations in Iowa or Kansas where a farmer will have hundreds of hogs, thousands of acres of grain. But the Freedom to Farm Act of the mid-1990s completely distorted this market. The headline is, Freedom to Farm through its different subsidies, made corn cheaper to buy than to grow. Corn was actually cheaper to buy on the open market thanks to the subsidies than it was to grow. Complete market distortion. Well, that market distortion was like rocket fuel to companies like Tyson Foods because as a big industrial meat producer, their biggest input cost is grain. They're not raising grain. They're only raising animals. So all of a sudden they had this tremendous advantage over what I call real farms, you know, people who actually raised grain and fed it to animals. So it, it, it was like rocket fuel to the industrial system. They got all this grain under the cost of producing it, and it, it was a tremendous subsidy to the cost of meat during the 90s. And that's when you saw this system just have its final victory over the, the system of independent farmers or diversified farms. That's when the industrial meat producers took off, really destroyed the independent market, and it has never been able to bounce back. I, w- I would like to point out, that the freedom to farm subsidies are no longer really relevant thanks to the ethanol subsidy. Now mm-hmm. grain is really pretty darn expensive. Yes. But once you, once you lose the independent system, you don't just get it back when the economics change. The independent system's been wiped out. These giant firms now have total control over the market and can maintain their position through anti-competitive practices. So they still have a firm grip today, even though they've lost some of the grain subsidies of the past. Very interesting. Chris, we're going to take a short break, uh, do a little sponsor drop for my sponsor, Kane 5 Winery. And we'll be right back with Christopher Leonard, the author of The Meat Racket. So stay with us. Thanks. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm speaking today with Christopher Leonard, the author of The Meat Racket, a new expose of the um, meat business, and specifically the Tyson um, Empire, I guess we should call it. Um, so, Chris, I want to talk about, because a lot of what we've been talking about now is how the meat, the thing, the uh, industry has consolidated, and what that means v- 
vis-a-vis antitrust laws. And um, and there was a lot of, uh, sort of towards the end of the book, you discuss um, various efforts uh, to sort of roll back the influence of the meat industry to try to, you know, kind of... Um, curb some of this kind of uh, anti-competitive behavior, as you discussed in the uh, earlier segment. So there was something called the Producer Protection Act, um, which was sort of an early, uh, not an early, but a more re- a recent development, uh, which didn't really fare very well, but which was kind of like the predecessor for trying to revamp the GYPSA rules. And I've actually done programs about GYPSA, which nobody remembers, but... Um, but what happened with the Producer Protection Act and what were the elements of that proposed legislation? I mean, I'm assuming that it would have something to do with um, trying to curb the uh, anti-competitive practices of big meat. Yes, correct. And as a little bit of background, I mean, today the meat industry is more consolidated than it has been at any point in U.S. history. Right. Four companies make 85% of the beef, just three companies make about half the chicken. And that wave of consolidation really happened in the 80s and 90s, kind of the late 70s, but definitely the 80s and 1990s. And some some people saw it happening and were really concerned about it. And one of the the biggest fights against this consolidation happened in Iowa in the 1990s, where the Attorney General Tom Harkin, I'm sorry, the Attorney General Tom Miller, Mm -hmm. was was really concerned about it because he saw what was coming down the road and how right. much power, power these companies were getting over farmers. So the Producer Protection Act that Tom Miller proposed, and it was then carried out and proposed in, in more than a dozen states and then later on the federal level, would have just done a few things to give farmers a little bit more power and create a little bit more transparency in this market for meat. And what struck me about the Producer Protection Act was really just how kind of incremental and pragmatic and minor some of these proposals were. I mean, for example, it it would have asked for contracts to be transparent instead of secret, so that as we totally lost the cash market for animals, I mean, for example, we used to have a real vigorous cash market for hogs, where the price of a hog was like a share of IBM. Everyone could see it go up and down. That totally got destroyed and, and erased by contract production. So Tom Miller was saying, let's at least let farmers share the terms of their contracts with each other so they can see what's fair and what's not fair and what other people are getting. That was one proposal. Another proposal would have said, hey, you companies can't just put someone out of business because they uh, raise questions or complain or producers try to associate with one another. Producers try to compare notes or, God forbid, even form a council together where they can put forward requests to the company as a as a collective unit instead of just individually. I mean, so these were the small kinds of changes that Tom Miller and then the uh, senator from Iowa, Tom Harkin, he proposed this on the federal level. Right. And the, the Producer Protection Act was, you know, struck down and defeated in all the states where it was proposed and on the federal level thanks to the remarkably well-funded and well-coordinated lobbying efforts of the meat industry. Yeah, and that includes things like the American Meat Institute, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the National Pork Producers Council, National Poultry Council. Um, I, you know, those guys, they, they they lobbed an unbelievable amount of money. You just I didn't bother to write it down, but it was like in the millions and millions of dollars. Um, and they had this one particular lobbyist, Sarah Lilligran. I loved her. Um, 
she she sent out to uh, all of the producers. This was weird. So this was sort of in response to the the chickenization of the hog industry in Iowa, which has always been a big pork producing state. Um, but she sent out a really wonderful letter to um, producers uh, that encouraged them to contact their legislators and say, "No, we don't want <laughs> producer protection act." And that makes me. <laughs> I mean, we got to know, why do farmers vote against their own interests in so many cases, and this being just the most glaring example of that? Yeah, you know, and Sari Lilligren, by the way, is the head lobbyist or head of govern- or public affairs, I think is what they call it, for Tyson Foods today. Yeah, and, not so And she, she, she launched this effort to destroy the Producer Protection Act before they could even really get it written down on the federal level and worked hand-in-hand hand with those other groups you mentioned. Yeah. So I think there is a deep aversion, and this is not rocket science, right? There is a deep aversion in states like Nebraska, Iowa, Missouri, Kansas, to government regulation. I mean, uh-huh. I, think, I think people see the hand of big government as uh, stupid, as ineffective, as, as hobbling them, because mostly what producers in these states encounter are EPA regulations, for example, OSHA regulations, or, or things like that. There's just this inherent distrust for government inter- intervention. Yeah. But, but the irony is, is that these, these big corporations that dominate our meat industry are characterized by everything we associate with anti-capitalism. They are characterized by centralized control, not independent producers making decisions on their own. Right. They're, they're characterized by secret contracts instead of open markets. I mean, it's a command and control centralized system. And that's what happens when you don't have antitrust regulations, when companies can get so big that they distort the free market. You know, the laws of supply and demand aren't necessarily what determine the price of chicken anymore. It's market power. That, the power of these companies is what determines the economics. It's what determines what farmers get paid and what consumers pay today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, so I think it's easy to go out in rural America and say, hey, the government's looking to put its nose even further into the tent right now. Never mind that the goal of antitrust law is to just keep markets competitive, open, and transparent. You know, so that's what the meat lobbyists have really leaned on. And, and, and look, I think also another reason this legislation is often pushed back and destroyed has nothing to do with what voters say, nothing whatsoever. It really is just money changing hands in Washington. I mean, that's where the real action is. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about Barack Obama's efforts to pass some new antitrust regulations, open up yes. the market a little bit. That got killed in Congress. I mean, that got killed in secret meetings. It got killed by lobbyists spending about $10 million, I'm sorry, about $8 million in 2010, and killing the legislation there. It wasn't even really put before voters. I mean, there was a lot of support for that in rural America. There was a lot of support for the GYPS rule, even though it was distorted and misrepresented by the lobbyists. There was still support for competitive markets. So... Yeah. Well, the GYPSA rule, I mean, we should say what GYPSA is. It's the Great Inspections Packers Stockyard Act, um, which was enacted way back in the early part of the 20th century and which was designed to protect farmers, I, I think, a lot from vertically integrated um, 
processes or vertically integrated businesses. And and then there was you had an interesting quote about um, the failure of GIPSA, the fact that it didn't end up passing despite uh, the efforts of Tom Vilsack, who was basically brought in as Secretary of Agriculture because it was thought that he was somewhat reform-minded. And Obama, certainly when he was campaigning the first time, saw that there was a lot of reform needed in the farming sector. Anyway, you, I'm going to quote you here. You say lawmakers were starting to see the GIPSA rule as a job-killing act of regulatory overreach that would speak to how farmers are scared of, of um, you know, of government uh, involvement in their businesses, and uh, and that it would send the meat industry back to the into the dark ages. And that also speaks to me, to um, to sort of the Republican mindset, uh, which I think is really interesting because you know instead of supporting a capitalist thing, they are here they are, um, you know, trying to. Play, or here they are playing right into the hands of uh, the meat industry in a way that would normally, uh, I think, uh, not happen if this were another age and another Congress. But Sure. And, you know, I don't want to just pick on, on Republicans here because a lot of these issues... Oh, why not, cut a, Chris? Come on. You, you bet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do want to say these issues cut across party lines. I mean, uh, and then uh, to back up a little bit, yeah, GYPSA was created in the 20s, or the Packers and Stockyards Act was passed in the 20s, to confront monopolistic abuses that happened 100 years ago. And we right. confronted them. We did a great job. We reopened up the market. We made it competitive. It was prosperous for rural America and good for consumers. Then we let the consolidation happen again. I think what we lack today, you know, the biggest trust buster in our history was Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican. Yeah. And he, he could articulate the benefits to people of breaking up monopolies. He could say this isn't about being anti-business. This is about being pro-competition, a square deal where workers can have good ideas, start a business, enter the market, and compete. And that when you let companies get so big that they can strangle markets, as we're seeing today, no question about it. No question. It suffocates the economy. It hurts economic growth overall. It takes money out of the pockets of farmers and consumers. Mm-hmm. And Teddy Roosevelt could really articulate that argument. It seemed to me that Tom Vilsack's USDA and then Obama above him, they were just incapable of articulating that argument. The meat lobbyists, for example, you know, they would take out an ad in a newspaper just saying Gypsum is going to kill jobs. I mean, talk about low-hanging fruit. Talk about an easy yeah. attack ad, right? Just say this is going to kill jobs. And for some reason, Vilsack was incapable of coming back and articulating why a new Gypsum rule would actually create more jobs. It would allow farmers to keep more of the money they earned for other companies. It would allow farmers to keep more of the money we spend at the grocery store. And it could actually help keep prices lower for consumers by creating more competition in the market. And that all of of these things are good long-term and very healthy long-term for an economy. Yeah, but they ju- they just couldn't make that argument, and they seemed so afraid of being accused of killing jobs that they started retreating almost immediately. I mean, they started retreating almost immediately on their own proposals, watering it down, uh, delaying them, and they really gave the playing field over to the meat lobbyists who took full advantage of it and finally killed 
the reform efforts uh, before they really got anywhere. Well, and also I think it should be pointed out that this was a, an election, you know, there was an election issue at stake as well because Obama wanted to win, win re-election. And so having the meat industry plastering ads all over newspapers that Gypsum was going to kill jobs was not really going to help him with his election efforts. So I think there is a certain amount of um, cynical uh, politicization of this uh, along with just <laughs> basically no backbone in the Democratic Party. But anyway, nope. um, one thing you to- uh, we point out, and, and this is something that's really been bothering me as I investigate the agricultural sector and what's going on there. Um, you make the point that remarkably, uh, and I'm going to quote again, remarkably little research has been done to measure the economic impact of vertically integrated meat production on the nation's economy. And instead, the massive firepower of public research dollars has been aimed at a different question, how to accelerate the industrialization of agribusiness. Now, this is sort of a little bit off topic, but it's kind of with within this whole issue. And that is, do you think that these land grant universities are compromised um, in their politics and in the, what they're teaching by the financial contributions of large agribusiness entities as a whole? Well, I absolutely do. And, and I talk to these people all the time. I, I'm not just coming here saying these universities are corrupt, okay? They're not bought off by big companies, but it's a, it's an alignment of interests. You know, Tyson Foods, Cargill, and JBS, when they put a lot of money into a research university, they're not, they don't really care about the economic impact of consolidation on rural communities. That's what I cared about as a journalist. Like, gosh, what does right. this mean for these rural communities? Let's get really good data on this. That data is not out there. Because what these companies want to research is you know, how can we cram more cattle onto a single feedlot without getting abscesses in their feet? Mm-hmm. Or how can we come up with a better alternative to antibiotics in chickens so we can give them drugs that aren't technically called antibiotics uh, <laughs> to, to grow more? And right. so it's an alignment of interests. And, I, yeah, I was really surprised. I thought that there would be great academic information out there on some of these issues about the public good. I mean, what has been the public impact on American society and rural communities and rural economies of this consolidation and these changes, and it it was just a vacuum. I mean, I really looked hard and couldn't find any studies along those lines. Yeah, and yet you were able to identify that, uh, let's see, you pointed out that in 68% of the counties that Tyson does business in, the economy has grown more slowly than the state average over the last 40 years. I mean, they have four decades of research, at least in terms of how, how much growth and income is happening in these rural communities, and that, that apparently hasn't uh, sent up any red flags to these land-grant universities or sociologists across the board who might want to study rural populations. Yeah, I mean, that's just the stu- study I did. I, I went to the Bureau right. of Labor Statistics, got per capita income adjusted for inflation going back to 1969, and I looked at every single county where Tyson operates, and the results were just as you said. What I found was that income grew more slowly in these counties than it did in the state as a whole. Now, again, I'm not just saying income was lower, as you might expect, maybe in a rural county. I'm saying it grew more slowly. The rate of growth was depressed compared to the state overall, even as these companies had meteoric rise in their profits. Right. And I do want to really point out what was striking to me was the situation was the worst in Arkansas, where Tyson has its real root of power and where it's been heavily based for decades. In Arkansas, Tyson's home state, where it really built its model, the Tyson counties, 90% of them did worse than the state overall. 
And to me, that highlighted a trend I saw throughout rural America, throughout reporting on this book, which is that consolidation squeezes producers and rural communities. In other words, the more power these companies get, the more they squeeze their producers, the less choices the producers have. Right. And yeah, the the more they can squeeze the economy. So, you know, you might have hog farmers entering their first contracts up in Iowa and getting decent terms today, or cattle feedlot owners who are starting to go under contract and turn away from the independent market, and they're getting good terms today. But they all need to examine the life of chicken farmers in the South who've who've entered these contracts 40 years ago and seen competition dwindle, and they will see exactly what their world is going to look like in 20 years right. when they have fewer choices and less competition. Chris, fascinating. So um, we have to close now, but I wanted to just um, do one more quote from the book, which really, really hit home for me. And that is, while Tyson has been the architect of this system, the driving force behind it is the American consumer. Americans have decided that meat must be cheap and plentiful. And that, to me, is like, you can blame the Tysons, you can blame the Cargills all you want. But the reality is, as consumers, we have driven this phenomenon, I think, more than anything else. I mean, these guys are just businessmen looking to make a buck. Am I right? Well, absolutely. I do want to qualify it a a little bit. I mean, yeah, consumers... You know, if if you vote with your dollar and all you care about is that the meat is as cheap as possible and that's all that matters, then it's absolutely just feeding into the system. And and we're starting to have a lot more choice of where we can put our dollars. But at, at the same time, my strong opinion is that we need more competition, choice, and transparency in this market. We need to break up yeah. the market hold of the big four so we can have actual real choice when we go into the grocery store a real choice of where we put our dollars. You know, we need meat companies that can enter this market and provide consumers with what I think consumers do want, which is meat that's not based in chemicals or grown with uh, drugs that are bad for animals and bad for the quality of meat, or meat that's raised a little bit more humanely. I mean, still factory environment, but maybe not hogs that can't move left or right, right. that kind of thing. I think if we open up the market more and as consumers become more aware, they could start flooding their dollars toward a system that is really giving them what they actually want. I, I, I would totally agree with you there because I don't think that factory farming will ever go away, but I do think that it's up to consumers to drive the changes that we're looking for, where you r- arrive at some mean between the niche-raised, you know, hand-stroked, uh, you know, hog cattle and chicken at a very high premium price versus the um, absurdly uh, taxpayer-subsidized low price of, of products from Sage Cargill or Tyson. Um, so the book, again, folks, is called The Meat Racket. The author, Chris Leonard, has been my guest today, please look at his website. Chris, what's your website? Uh, ChristopherLeonard.biz. Absolutely. Check it out. You can see where Chris will be speaking, where uh, you can obtain more information about this book, uh, read previous articles, and of course, buy the book, um, which is available on Amazon Books and in booksellers across the country. Um, Chris, thank you so much for this. You're a terrific guy. Great interview. And uh, this is just a terrific book. I, I wish you the most success possible with it. Thanks for Thank you this. so much for the time. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for writing the book. And thanks, thanks to my sponsor and thanks to my engineer, Jack Inslee. This has been another episode of What Doesn't Kill You. Come back next week. We'll be talking about Iowa pig farms. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.